Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Anthem CDA. Good to see all your faces this morning. Anybody else bummed out that it's so nice outside? <laughs> My goodness. Um, if you're new with us, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here this morning, uh, or all the time, but this morning. Uh, we're going to be studying the book of Matthew in chapter 12. We're going to be working through verses 38 through 50. And so if you guys want to turn there, that'd be awesome. We're going to have it on the screen. We're kind of in an interesting text this week. And as we work through this passage, um, there's, it's sort of like three different sections that I want to teach in three different sections but we're going to read it all together. And so, anyway, if you would turn to Matthew 12, verse 38, and say a word when you get there. Everybody good this morning? All right. All right. Verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the privilege of being able to gather in your name this morning. I ask Jesus that you would show up in this place. God, as we talk about hardness of heart this morning, uh, I realize, God, that there's some that come here this morning that are battling that. And I ask Jesus that you would soften the hearts of those who are struggling this morning. I pray, Jesus, that your spirit would just guide this time, Lord. We relinquish it to you, God. This is not about us trying to make something of ourselves or me trying to give eloquent words, Lord. This is your time. And so I pray you just take your word, you'd implant it into our hearts, God, and we pray that it would produce fruit, Lord, that you would change us and transform us as your family in your name. Amen. So we're looking at 38 to 50. Uh, and as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking about one character flaw that we all probably fear possessing at some point in our life the most. Uh, a trait that I think none of us wish we had, nor do we ever want to see it in others. It's something we struggle with. It's a trait that keeps some of the best meaning people from ever actually feeling. And that character flaw that I'm talking about is the hardness of heart. 
In other words, uh, the, some other synonyms for this word or this phrase, hardness of heart, are cruel, callous, heartless, merciless, uncaring, unfeeling, pitiless. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever struggled with having a hard heart, but it's terrible. None of us want to express emotions or feelings like that. We don't want to have to go there. We don't want to have to be depicted or perceived as people that have a hard heart. We don't want to actually live like that. And we don't want to be people that are received like that. We don't want people, we want to be received with acceptance and we want to be received with understanding. We want to be received with mercy. We want to be received um, with grace and, and by others. And hard-heartedness actually depicts the exact opposite of this. The Bible talks a lot about hard-heartedness, um, but it speaks of hard-heartedness from a spiritual perspective. And, and it's really important because you can be the most tender person, you can be the most compassionate person, you can be somebody who's constantly on the verge of tears, uh, and, and, and yet still be somebody who struggles to have a hard heart towards spiritual things specifically towards Jesus. And, and so the, the scriptures go deeper, and it, they don't look um, at hard-heartedness from a surface standpoint, but it goes deeper than that, and it gives us example after example after example of people who struggled with hard-heartedness or references to Jesus accusing somebody of having a hard heart. And maybe the most infamous person talked about in the Bible as having a hard heart would be Pharaoh. The book of Exodus talks about Pharaoh's hard-heartedness multiple times. And we also know that Pharaoh's not alone in that sense. Uh, the disciples of Jesus are talked about at times as displaying hard hearts. There's a passage in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus warns his disciples about something called the yeast of the Pharisees, is what he refers to, and this yeast being sin, this connection to sin. And so Jesus warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees to his disciples. And the disciples sort of look at Jesus like, huh, like what is this guy talking about? Um, they, they sort of begin to ask one another if Jesus is getting on them because they didn't have any bread. Like what's Jesus referencing? And then Jesus says back to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and under, or understand? Are your hearts hardened is what he said. Having eyes, do you, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And the, there's the, the references to the Pharisees and their hardness of heart. We continue to see this pattern showing up again and again where Jesus is addressing the hard hearts of the Pharisees. One example of this is an event that we saw a, a few weeks ago when we were looking in the book of Matthew. But Mark explains it with a little bit different uh, insight. And it's a story of Jesus healing the man with the withered hand that we talked about a few weeks ago. And if you remember that story, Jesus asked the Pharisees, is it okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they refused to answer, and this is how Mark writes it. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And so here's the question that's sort of going to set the stage for the rest of the time this morning. How do we know whether or not we have a hardened heart? Because we can talk about a hardened heart all we want, but how do we identify, how do we know if we actually have it? How do we know if we're trending in that direction? Are there signs that, that we can look out for? Is there any way for us to tell? And so that question sort of brings us to this passage that we're looking at this morning, where, I, again, I want to identify three separate sections in this passage that give some insight into our own lives. 
And there's three specific things in this passage that I want us to look at to help us determine whether or not we struggle with a hard heart. So here's the three things. We know we, know we are hard-hearted when, uh, one, we demand validity, uh, specifically uh, when it comes to the claims of Jesus. Two, uh, when we're dedicated to morality, when our life is just driven to trying to constantly do the right thing. And then three, when we're devoted to our family, when, I'll talk about this later, but when family becomes the idol, when family becomes the God, we use these things to sort of mask our hard-heartedness. So some of you might hear this, these three things this morning, and even think like demanding the validity of something doesn't always evidence the hardness of a heart. But my challenge to you is that it actually can, especially in this specific instance that Jesus is addressing, um, when we can actually use this to mask sort of our predetermined unwillingness to land somewhere. Like, what did Jesus know about the hearts of the Pharisees as they begin to ask him for a sign? What Jesus knew was where they were really going and where their hearts were really at. Were they really looking for a sign where even if he was to give them a sign, would, would it have transformed their hearts? Like, they'd already seen sign after sign after sign up to this point. And so, sometimes we can use these things in our life to sort of mask the fact that we have a hard heart so that we don't actually have to deal with the heart state. Again, it's the same with our dedication to morality um, because we have the potential of trying to be so moral that it actually leaves no room for a savior. Like, um, and then again, with our loyalty to our family, when it becomes an excuse not to be connected to the family of God and we actually isolate and we make our families the idol, our families the God, because we don't actually want to deal with what's actually going on deep within our own hearts. And so I want to take each session one by one. And so we'll start with the first one here, Matthew 12, 38, this demand for validity. It says, then some of the scribes, and the scribes were the legal experts, um, the, 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 the legal experts of the law of God. And he says, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious experts, answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So I want to stop there because at surface level, I think you read this and this ask from the scribes and the Pharisees to, to see a sign does not sound unreasonable at first glance. Like, of course you'd ask for a sign. Like, they want to validate whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. Um, one, in fact, this is one of the things that we've talked about through the course of the series of Matthew is how important the signs with regards to Jesus's ministry were. Like the signs actually bore witness to Jesus. The signs brought validity to what Jesus taught and to what Jesus claimed. The, the signs signified um, that what Jesus was saying was actually true. He backed it up with these signs. And so from that perspective, it seems reasonable for them to ask this question in fact, in John's gospel, he sort of backs us up in regards to the important role that signs played. In John 20, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there was a purpose to the signs. And so if that's the case, if that's the role that signs play, they point us to Jesus, they validate Jesus, then why does Jesus respond the way he does in verse 39 when he says his response to them is, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given. Does that not sound harsh? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given. So what's wrong with wanting further validation to back up your claims? Why did Jesus respond this way? And I think it's because Jesus knew that it was a bluff. They're, they're asking Jesus for validation wasn't birthed out of a genuine pursuit for Jesus. It, was, it wasn't authentic. And more than that, the, their request in all actuality actually depicted faithlessness. It depicted negativity and depicted unbelief. And, and this all came out of their hard hearts. One commentator goes as far as to say their demand for a sign spells the end of faith. And so you fast forward to 2021, and I think that we all know a lot of people asking similar questions, maybe not to this degree, but certainly similar. People who ask questions, but not for inquiry's sake, uh, but as a way to actually mask a resistance to Jesus that they've already committed to. Like, they have no intention. They're just going to ask the questions just to kind of be jerks, like they're, they're throwing a bluff. They don't really care. They're just going to continue to ask the question. There are people, honestly, whose, whose skepticism and doubt have become their identity, and they like it that way. They sort of will bask in their skepticism and doubt. That's who they are, and they just want to stay in that. But if you're somebody sitting here this morning who earnestly has questions, uh, and, and you have doubts, and you're seeking answers for things, then like, welcome to our church, because I hope this is a place where people can come and ask questions and struggle through doubts and, and have questions and whatnot. Like, drop in, our, in a community group, go to our bib ed class, find spaces where you can ask those questions and get those out there. But this is not the person that I'm addressing right now. I'm talking about the person who asked the question for the question's sake and nothing more. They don't really have a heart to press in and learn. So, so they asked Jesus, like these Pharisees, show us a sign. And Jesus responds in the first part of that in verse 39. And yet, in spite of their motive, Jesus doesn't send them away sign free. He actually says a sign will be given, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be given on, a, on his time. It's going to be a sign that you weren't looking for. And if you look at the end of verse 39, he says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, is what he says. And then Jesus continues on in verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So who is this prophet Jonah? Um, I have a son named Jonah. Years ago, we were actually flying to Alaska, Heather and I, and I was going to preach at this church for a weekend, and we had determined that we were going to name our son Holden. And I was preparing to preach in, uh, in Alaska at this church, and I was preaching out of the book of Jonah. And the whole way, I just felt like the Lord was saying, um, this was to be his name. And I told Heather, I think we're supposed to name him Jonah. And she's like, oh, no. You know, it was the disobedient prophet, you know. But there's this really amazing redemptive side of Jonah and on top of that, like Jonah's name actually means dove. It, it, it means peace. And there's something really sweet about that. But the prophet Jonah was this, this Jewish prophet, this Israelite. He, he was a prophet that was called by God to go into the city called Nineveh, for those of you that don't know the story. Nineveh was this capital of, um, was the capital of the enemy, like the, the capital of the Assyrians. 
And God tells this prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh to walk into the city and then to pronounce judgment on the city. city. Like that literally was Jonah's call. Does anybody want that job this morning? Like go to Spokane and I want you to pronounce judgment on the city of Spokane. Like no thank you, right? So much like maybe some of us in this room would do, Jonah's like, no thank you. Like I'm not doing it. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he actually goes the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. And so it would be sort of like if the Lord called you to Sandpoint. Does God call people to Sandpoint? Is that, is he, I'm just kidding. So if the Lord called you to Sandpoint, you're like, no, I'm going to Boise. You know, I'm just going the opposite direction. Jonah decides to run. He's like, I'm not even going to go close to Nineveh. I'm going to go a totally different way. And so he gets in this boat and he heads off to this place called Tarshish. And while he's on this boat going to Tarshish, God brings this gnarly storm that crashes over the boat, freaks the crew out. The crew on the ship don't know what to do about it. And Jonah's in the bottom of the ship, and he's sitting there sleeping. And and when they go looking for him, they finally find him, and he tells them that he's actually his prophet, and he's been running from God. God told him to go deliver this message, and he's deliberately chosen not to do it. And so the crew doesn't want to die, and they think the bad luck that's being caused by the storm is a result of this prophet that's being disobedient that we're housing in our ship. And so we need to get this guy off the boat. And so they boot him off the boat. They throw him into the water. And um, no longer does Jonah get into the water. The fish swallows him up, and he's in the belly of this fish three days and three nights, and he gets puked up onto land. And he sort of gets a second chance. And then Jonah leaves with the second chance. He goes to Nineveh. He gives one of the worst and shortest messages ever given in all of Scripture, I think. And radically, like, God shows up. And, the, and there's repentance. There, these people turn. And this is Jonah. And so what does this have to do with Jesus? Why does Jesus reference this story? Well, the reality is that the story of Jonah pointed ahead to Jesus. There's so many amazing parallels when you read through the book of Jonah and see how it's a foreshadowing of Christ. So Jonah served as this foreshadowing of Jesus. In other words, the the experience that Jonah went through serves as this type for what Jesus himself would actually experience, what he would go through. And so as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, and he was spit out, so the Son of Man, Jesus, would die, be buried. He would rise again three days later. And so this passage in verse 40 was this prediction of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And so remember what they asked for. They said, we want a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign Accept the sign of Jonah, except the one I've already given you, is what he's saying. In other words, I, I'm going to give you the sign of my death, the sign of my burial, and my resurrection. That's the sign that he promised to give them, and he had already given that to them. But, but why this sign specifically? Why does Jesus point to the sign of Jonah? And I want to give a handful of reasons for this. One, because it was his greatest his greatest sign, like his death and burial and resurrection were the greatest sign that Jesus could have pointed to. It was the best miracle he could have provided. Um, Two, it fully established Jesus's claims. Like all other claims pointed to this, his death and his burial and resurrection, new life that would come through the Messiah, through Jesus. And so the, the people that Jesus is speaking to here were the crew that, that threw Jesus into the storm to calm it down. 
And it was a sign that they ultimately didn't believe in. In fact, they attempted to cover it up. And you can read about that in the end of Matthew 28. It was a sign that only further revealed their guilt and the hardness of their hearts. And the greatest of all signs was rejected, Jesus, which actually revealed what it was actually going on deep down inside of their hearts. And then lastly, it was a sign of judgment. It goes on to say in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And I want you to hold on to that statement for a second. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. So if you look at the, these sections one by one, verse 41, Jesus says that the men of Nineveh will judge that generation, the generation of Jesus, because the Ninevites repented in spite of the little that God gave them in comparison to the great amount that Jesus gave to his generation, whose hearts remained hardened. Like Jesus is among them and their hearts are hardened. I mean, just consider the differences between Jonah and the Ninevites and Jesus and the generation that Jesus is referencing. Nineveh received their message from Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who was rebellious and resistant. The generation in Matthew 12 received this message from God in the flesh who was faithful and a willing witness. This message to Nineveh was one of doom, and all Jonah said when he entered the city of Nineveh was essentially, in 40 days, you guys are toast. And that's, that's essentially what he said. He didn't even say, like, you guys have an option. It was, I'm going to let you know that in 40 days you get fire and brimstone. <laughs> and then he leaves, and that's all he does. And Jesus, in stark contrast to this, he, he presents this message of grace and mercy says he didn't come to condemn the world, but he actually came to save it, according to John 3. That Jonah performed no signs to validate if he was legit. Jesus, on the other hand, has done tons, dozens of signs and miracles up till this point in the text in Matthew to validate who he was. And, and it, in fact, the word says that the world couldn't contain the number that G, of signs and miracles that Jesus did. Like, no book can contain it. Jonah preached to a people that were totally unfamiliar with the scriptures. Jesus taught, teaches to a people who were well-versed in scriptures, who had a clear understanding of their heritage and the promises offered to them through this Messiah. Yet Nineveh is the one who repents, while the generation that Jesus is speaking to is rejecting him, and not only rejecting Jesus, but rejecting Jesus' message. Commentator writes this, Less enlightened people obeyed less enlightened preaching, but more enlightened people refused to obey the light of the world. But the Ninevites wouldn't be the only ones who would condemn Jesus' generation. Jesus goes on to talk about this queen of the south that will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and that this queen of the south will rise up and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You have to understand the conversation that Jesus is having with them because they understand what Jesus is saying, the references he's making, 
but can't quite put the pieces together. So who is this queen of the south that he's referring to? It's this queen of Sheba. She's talked about in 1 Kings 10 and in 2 Samuel 9. She was this queen uh, from the country of the Sabaeans uh, located in Lower Arabia. In relationship to Jerusalem, she's like 1,200 miles south uh, from Jerusalem. And the question is, why is Jesus referencing her? Because like the Ninevites, she responded in, in spite of the little that she had heard. So she was extremely wealthy, and the reason for this was because she lived in a country that sat on this Mediterranean Indian trade route. She had a lot, but because she was on this trade route, she actually had the opportunity to hear about this king named Solomon who had this divine wisdom that people could tap into. And even though she was 1,200 miles away and didn't have an invitation to go meet this man, she packs up everything. She brings gold and spices and gifts, makes this trek 1,200 miles so that she could have an opportunity to talk to Solomon. And what a contrast. What a contrast to the generation that Jesus is referring to who didn't have to make a long trip to hear the wisdom of God because God stood right before them. To quote Eugene Peterson, he says, because the very wisdom of God moved into the neighborhood. And this queen had only heard reports about Solomon while Jesus' generation had literally seen and heard Jesus themselves. She had no invitation to come, but she came. And she rejoiced in being able to hear Solomon's wisdom, and she praised the Lord on his behalf. Jesus' generation had been invited and pleaded with to come, but they refused. And then they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. She comes bearing gifts for Solomon, but in stark contrast, not only gave nothing to Jesus, but they conspired to kill him. Like, what a contrast. And so this is why Jesus says the queen of the south will stand in judgment against them because she did all she could to hear Solomon while they refused Jesus, who is greater than Solomon in every way. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is right here with us. And I love the greater than language that's woven all throughout the New Testament, that Jesus makes claims that he's greater than the temple, that he's greater than Jonah, he's greater than Solomon. In other words, he's a greater priest. Jesus is a greater king. He's a greater prophet. That's the Jesus that we serve. Second thing is that there's a dedication to morality that can sometimes do the same thing as us demanding validity. So if you read 43, verse 43 through 45, he says this, when the unclean spirit, this is just a, a weird section, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came and listen to this, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and they dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be for this evil generation. This is harsh verbiage that Jesus is reading. You sort of read this section and you're like, where's the connection? Why didn't Jesus just stop at this reference to the Queen of Sheba? But one thing I wanted to know is that you can't use this text to kind of create your own demonology. Um, we also can't use this as a text to sort of read as a description of what takes place in a person who has a demon cast out and there's nothing left to replace it. And people try to do all kinds of gymnastics with this text. 
But this passage was meant to serve as sort of a parable, sort of an allegory of what's taking place in the people of Jesus' day, specifically these religious leaders and those who follow their lead. Jesus isn't talking about a person as much as he's talking about an entire generation is what he's referencing. Look ahead at verse 45 where he says, so also will it be with this evil generation. Go back to verse 39. Jesus answers them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And so he's talking about the, the, this generation in this parable. And third, I think this passage actually serves as sort of a warning. And the, the warning that, that nothing hinders us from coming to faith more than our moral goodness. And I want you to hear that this morning. That there's nothing more dangerous for you and I in coming to Jesus than our morality. When that becomes the thing that we're trying to uphold, to do the right things. And what Jesus is saying is that the condition that that generation was in with their dedication to religiosity, with their high moral ethic, was far worse than any condition of any generation previous to it. Think about that, what Jesus is saying. Think about their history and the things that they had gone through. And this is what stands out about this allegory that Jesus uses, is that even though everything looked in order, even though everything had been swept clean, as he references, even though as people looked at them, everything looked great, and in spite of all of that, what? They were in bad shape. And they were far more susceptible to these blinding tactics of the enemy than they thought. And why? Because their dedication was keeping them from actually coming to the Savior. Like, why do you need a Savior when you've already saved yourself? What's the purpose in Jesus when you can do all the right things to make your way through it? Why do you need him? Another commentator said, dedication to keeping the outside clean is more useful to the demonic realm than brash immorality. So who's more prone to coming to the father, the prodigal son or the older son? The commentator goes on to say, a religious, self-righteous, outwardly reformed person is subject to Satan in a way that a guilt-ridden, immoral person is not because his very morality blinds him from the basic sinful condition and need. To hold to a morality, even according to biblical standards of behavior, but not salvation through Jesus, promotes a religion that drives people further from God than they were before they were formed. So think about that in light of our culture nowadays. How often do you hear people say things like, I don't need God, I'm a good person. It's sort of the mantra of our world. And the fact of the matter is that maybe you're a good person. Maybe you're like better than most. Maybe you're highly moral. Maybe you have a strong ethic. Maybe your house is in order, uh, at least looks great. But what you failed to realize is that your house might look good, but it's actually empty. And this is what Jesus is referencing. And so it's susceptible to the work of the enemy who seeks to keep you from coming into relationship with the one who offers you salvation. So Anthem, one, we talked about this demand for validation and how that displays our hardness of heart. Talked about the fact that we can sometimes use our morality to display, our morality sometimes displays our hardness of heart and masks that. And then the third one, and this is where I'll spend a little bit more time this morning, is our devotion to family. Because I, I think that it's interesting that Jesus ends this passage. I mean, there's a drastic contrast from verse 50 into the next section. It's like totally shifting gears. And Jesus ends on this section on family. He says, 
while he was still speaking to the people, he says, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So to clarify up front, like Jesus isn't asking you to renounce your actual family. Cool? You guys get that? He's not asking you to literally leave your family behind because now you've got new spiritual family and so to heck with the rest of your family. It's not what he's asking. But Jesus is actually stating that following him is actually greater. He, he takes priority. His kingdom takes priority. And so much so that those who follow Jesus are counted as his brothers, sisters, his mother. Like, you are literally the family of God. Is that not an amazing thing? The, the other thing about this family is that it's not a family that blood relationship guarantees. Like, that wasn't even the case for Jesus' family. You think about Mary, you think about Jesus' brothers. The reality with Jesus' blood family is that Jesus' family had to come to faith in Jesus to be saved just like everybody else. So there was a process for them to become part of the spiritual family that Jesus is referencing is referencing. And so if you're hinging your salvation on the fact that your family are believers, you're mistaken. We, we live in a culture where that, run, that thought runs rampant in the American church, where it's like, I grew up in a Christian home. My family always went to church. I always went to youth group. I always did the Christian things. We assume over time that that's what makes us a Christian. And this, Jesus is making a fairly stark contrast, like distinguishing this. They're like, who are his family? Those who do the will of the Father are his family. You're not born into that. That's something you choose to follow. And so as it relates to this third aspect of hard-heartedness, how can a devotion to our earthly family be a sign of our hard-heartedness? And I really believe that there are those in the church who've made it their sole priority to just invest in their earthly families. Like the earthly family becomes the priority. They devote their time, their energy, their resources just to the family. And along the way, they've essentially ignored, they've totally excluded the greater family that they've been bought to be a part of. And in some cases, I really think that this devotion is actually masking a hardness of heart towards God and his people. In our culture, it's really easy to do um, because we, 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 we know how to make things look good. We can make it look like everything is in order. So we like date nights, right? Anybody like a date night? We're told, like, you need to go on date nights. They're important. You're coaching your kids' teams are important. Like, I love coaching my team, kids' teams. I just don't know enough about football and soccer. But having outings with your family, important. Being involved in your kid's school, it's important. And so I want you guys to hear me this morning when I say like these things are important, that you're involved in your family. I like all of these things. Every single aspect of it is amazing unless it reaches a point where you no longer have any time for the family of God and the activities for you and your family that, that, that will actually matter, not just for time here and now, but for eternity. And I, I, I sort of see a lot of families 
rushing one way or the other, where it's just like, no, it's all family of God, and I just have to be in church, and you totally forsake your family, or they shift the other direction, where it's all about their family, and their family becomes the idol, and they totally write off the value of connecting to the family of God. Heather and I had dinner with a a couple the other night, and they asked a really good question. Like, Heather and I have spent most of our lives having people living in our house, and for the years that I did skateboard ministry, it was just skateboarders living in our house for probably 10 years straight, on and off, all the time. And this couple asked us, like, what was that like to have people in your house all the time? And we don't have people in our house now. Do you miss it? And what was that like for your family to constantly have your house kind of barraged by other people? And the interesting thing about it is, my my oldest son isn't here, but what? He's here? Oh, there's Judah, buddy. Um, I didn't see him with his mom. Um, but my son would probably tell you he's got a lot of uncles in his life. He's got people that were um, far more than just blood family. There were people that lived with us, that grew to know him and to love him. And, and so when the family aches, um, or when a person in the family aches, the whole family aches. I mean, we just had suffered a really crazy setback with one of the guys who lived with us for years this last week. And it's just our hearts sink because he's like a son. He's, he's a brother. He's an uncle. Like there's something more to him than just a dude that we went to church with together. He, there's more. And so there's something really miraculous about this family that Jesus unites together, the family of God. There's something amazing when Jesus starts saying, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother, but those that do the will of my father. And so I have to ask, is it possible that the, the things that you're holding up is related to your family, the, the devotion that you, give, that, you, that you give it, is it possible that it could be masking a hardness of heart, or at the very least, a lack of openness towards God and his family? Because there's a greater family here. And we continue to hear the story of people moving to town, and they want to connect. They want to they, they, they become part of a family, like in a church. And so what does that mean? Well, that only happens when you all have the perspective that everybody's part of the family of God who does his will and who are saved by his grace through faith. And so we begin to look at one another as more than people that we attend a church with and go to gatherings with. We begin to look at these people as aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and people that we actually invite into the family. And the amazing thing about this is I think about our own church is that there's all different generations represented here. There are people from all different backgrounds, different states, different races. Like there's all kinds of different people, different theological bents. Whether you like it or not, there's Democrats and Republicans in the room this morning. There's people from all different facets, And the amazing thing about this idea of being the family of God is that despite all of those things that the world wants to use to divide us, something has actually united us as a family. And we celebrate that. Because what I realize is there's only so much that I can offer a family, but each of you have something else that you bring to the table. There's going to be times when I mess up with my son or I mess up with my wife and somebody else brings correction to me. Or there's going to be times when my son turned... Uh, when my son turned 12, I sat around a bonfire with about six or eight guys that I'm closest to, and I said, I had all these guys bring, like, a, a scripture and a few life lessons that they wanted to share with my son, and I just said to my son, here's dudes that you can count on. 
Like, these are legit guys. That if dad isn't around or dad, you know, is, is gone somewhere or you don't like my opinion, <laughs> here's six or eight guys. I trust them with my life. They're part of you. They're uncles. And, and so when we look at church, I mean, people have been asking a question in the last few weeks, especially as we're looking at this building. Like, how do you preserve the feeling of family at Anthem once you have a building? And I really would turn that question back on our church and say, how do you contribute to the family to keep it from becoming a corporate entity that we just attend once a week? But it becomes deeper than that. And that's really not on Chris to say, let me make that happen and set the DNA and make you guys do all the right things like robots. It's really the Spirit of God working in you. There's some of you in this room that literally when we talk about hardness of heart, the reason you've jumped to families or other, you know, your blood, your, your kids or your wives, whatever it is, your spouses, the reason you've jumped to them and made them a priority is because of prior experiences you've had in life with your own family where there was a lot of hurt and pain and you don't really want to go there and deal with that and so you've replaced that with somebody else and it's allowed you to mask over the stuff that you're actually dealing with. And I would say as the family of God, one of the things that we're committed to is wrestling through hard stuff, allowing the family to speak into our lives and allowing the spirit of God to move through the family to soften the heart back to the state that Jesus intended for it to be in so that we can be moldable like clay in his hand, that he can shape us and form us as his church. So as we wrap this up, how can we know that we're hard-hearted or that we're trending in that direction? How do you know if that's you? Um, one, are there times in your skepticism or your doubts that you demand validity all the while, like, determining that Jesus just isn't going to show up and he's not going to be there, but you're wanting him to make him show up and make himself known. But you've already predetermined in your heart what you want out of him. Secondly, um, are there those of you in this room that have dedicated your lives to morality and you've basically left no room for a savior? Your house is clean, but it's empty inside. And then third, are there those of you that have ever made your family the God and the idol and the priority to the exclusion of the family of God? It's interesting as Jesus pushes back with the Pharisees because what Jesus does is in real eloquence in Jesus-esque ways, he asks questions and brings up parables that reveal the real heart of the matter. And what's interesting is that they're so blinded and their hearts are so hard that they can't even understand the logic that he's working through. We sit here 2,000 years on the other side of this. You've got the whole book before you. You know how it began and you know how it ends. For some of you, you're asking God for these signs and maybe God's just simply saying to you, I've given you all that I need to. Like my life, my death, my resurrection, is that enough for you? Or will you spend the rest of your life waiting for validation? So I don't know where you guys are at, but kind of the thought I had coming in this morning was that there's probably people here who predetermined before they came here this morning that 
they weren't going to listen and weren't going to get anything out of this and that Jesus has already predetermined for them how sucky their life is going to be and so I'm not even going to give them a chance and my simple question for you this morning is like if you won't give him a chance how can he show up and make himself known and real in your life if your heart's so guarded and so hardened because you've predetermined what he will and won't do so there's no room for the miracle to happen let me pray for you would you stand with me Jesus, I just thank you for your church. Um, Lord, as I talk about the family of God, I just feel blessed to be surrounded by such amazing people, people that um, I personally get to witness the transformative work of Jesus in their lives. I thank you for the honor, God, of serving in a church full of people that I know love you that want to follow your ways, devote their lives to you, Jesus. And so I pray for us as we turn our eyes, our hearts, our affections towards you, Jesus. Would you do the hard work of actually uniting the family together by spirit? God, would you continue to build this family and multiply it? Because we want to be a people that don't get so insulated that we look around at this room and think this is good when there's thousands outside of this building that do not know you, who are at places in life where they're desperately in need of a savior, and yet we're just gonna holy huddle on a Sunday and keep our family to ourselves. I pray, God, that you give us your perspective, that you give us the 30,000 foot view, that as we leave this building today, God, and we go to lunch and we grab coffee, we go to the grocery store, wherever it is, God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that our hearts would be softened, Jesus, that we be willing to listen as you lead in our lives, that we wouldn't predetermine things, make decisions on our own, or try to establish our salvation on our own, Jesus, to make it happen. But in fact, we entrust it to you, God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that we would be saved. And I thank you for that tremendous gift. I pray your blessing upon each person here. I pray as we go that we'd see the handiworks of your spirit moving throughout our lives in every facet in our homes, and our marriages, our relationships. God, move powerfully. And would we be a people that are devoted to you, Jesus? Thank you in your name. Amen.